The words holy fire in a sermon title might make some Park Road Baptist a little nervous, ringing too charismatic for this room, but the Spirit is a story the church has told from the very beginning. During this season of Eastertide, we are walking with the early church, tracking the stories they told, stories that are still part and parcel of what it means to be church. We have told the stories of resurrection and belief itself, breaking bread and abundant life and the way. Each of the stories became foundational in the church's understanding, essential to its eventual break with its Jewish heritage. And central to all these stories is the person of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, belief in Jesus, breaking bread to know Jesus, abundant life through Jesus, the way of Jesus. Today's text, however, marks a turning point as the church begins to consider its life without Jesus. The text is known as the farewell discourse in John's gospel. In context, we'll have to go back in time before Easter. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in advance of his crucifixion, presumably the night before, that would be Maundy Thursday, though John's gospel is not explicit about what night. It takes three full chapters for John to cover the complete message of Jesus to his disciples. You ought to read that sometimes in its entirety. We dealt with a small part of it last week. Listen to another snippet of it today. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father who will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows the truth. You know the truth because the spirit abides in you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Now, this is a powerful scene. Jesus sitting with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. They share the Last Supper, and he begins telling them he's going to leave them. There was a foreboding sense in the air, though his friends still were clueless as to what all of this meant. You remember Thomas from last week who said, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How could we know the way? They had no clue. After Jesus had died, they began to look back and they remembered these words. If you love me, keep my commandments. I will ask God to send another advocate, a comforter. I will not leave you orphaned. Now, I want to take seriously this story as most Christians hear it the way I just shared it with you, literally Jesus preparing the disciples for his imminent death, sitting with them that night. Jesus began speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit. God will give you an advocate. I will not leave you orphaned. Now, this is a powerful way to read John's gospel, but you won't be surprised that I'd like to invite you to consider a different way. I've invited you to this interpretation of John's gospel before. I believe it's an interpretation that is not only more plausible, 
but quite possibly more powerful as we read it. In this interpretation, we take seriously the facts on the ground, considering all the events as they happen in real time. Prior to his death, the disciples had no idea. They could not have anticipated his death, and they surely could not have framed crucifixion in any positive light. For the Torah said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And even if they had, come, had overcome that insurmountable biblical obstacle, no first century Jew considered resurrection a possibility for an individual. We studied this for two weeks, last, uh, uh, the last two weeks with my resurrection group on Sunday afternoon. The resurrection of the dead was to be the great gathering of souls, the return to physical life of all the righteous at the time of the restoration, the consummation of Israel. So reading John's story at face value, the disciples are all sitting there being prepared for his crucifixion and anticipating the coming of the Holy Spirit, which would sustain them after salvation came through his death on the cross. Well, that just seems to me a very Christianized, retrospective reading. And that may be easy for us after 2,000 years of theology overlaying the whole story, but more plausible in my mind is the gathering of ideas that we now accept as historical, a gathering of stories that took place over many years as Jesus' movement, the way as they were called, as the way began to gain momentum. Since no one knew to look for crucifixion or resurrection, appearances or ascension, they went away after his death, stunned and afraid, confused and mostly silent. But in the weeks and months and years that followed, the very real presence of Jesus would not die, did not leave them orphaned. Like a haunting, he was there at every turn, and they began to hear scripture and remember his life differently. In time, they shared their ideas, and those who were literate began to write them down. Some years later, a Pharisee named Saul had a dramatic conversion, and he became Paul, the first full-fledged proponent of what would become a new religion. Fifteen years after Paul's writings had begun to circulate in the ancient world, someone named Mark wrote down the story as he heard it. It was laced with Paul's theology and took a literary form we now call a gospel. Fifteen years after that, Matthew and Mark, using many of Matthew and Luke, using many of Mark's literal words, wrote their gospels. And then maybe as long as 20 years after that, a man named John appears on the scene to tell his story. Now, maybe John sat down, as some want you to believe, inspired by God with the exact message, all the literal words of Jesus, so he could put them in red and we could know exactly what Jesus said. It could have happened that way. Or maybe, maybe John, all those years later, after the Christian movement had begun to gain steam, maybe John sat down to write a story that was not just hearsay, 
eyewitness reports from the original disciples conveyed through Paul's theology, filtered through Mark's story, further contextualized by Matthew and Luke. Now, there was certainly some of that, but maybe mostly what we have in John's gospel is the testimony of a Christian community daring to live the ethic of Jesus in real time, in a world that was still dominated by Roman occupation and oppression. The first Christian persecutions occurred under Emperor Nero, who ruled from 54 to 68. So this would have been before John's time. The Christians would have begun enduring persecutions by the Romans. Being Christian in that world would, would have alienated you from your family and your Jewish heritage. It might get you persecuted by the culture, if not killed by the Romans. Tradition says that at least eight of the original disciples were martyred. So maybe today's text represents John's words. Words a gospel writer placed in the mouth of Jesus. That does not make them untrue or any less divinely inspired. On the contrary, they stand as a bold proclamation of a community of faith who did know the love of Jesus because in keeping his commandments, loving as he loved, they had paid the price. They were paying the price. If you love me, keep my commandments they had. And maybe that word about an advocate, a comforter, a counselor to come alongside was not pious dogma, but real experience. In living his love, he had not abandoned them. Because I live, you will live. They felt his presence, a presence, the Spirit of God with them. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. I will not leave you orphaned. And they were not. In keeping the commandments, living as he lived, the Spirit of God was with them, will always be with us. Now these are not words of a community who cloistered itself in hidden sanctuaries to revel in ecstatic, charismatic experiences to claim some possession of spiritual pride because they could speak in tongues or prophesy or heal. As Garth House has said it, the church was born in wind and fire, not to sweep us heavenward like a presumptuous tower, but to guide us down the dusty roads of this world so that we may lift up the downcast, heal the broken, reconcile what is lost, and bring peace amidst unrest. I have no interest in holy fire, as some people understand those words. I do want to be part of a community of faith like John's community of faith. That is just Pentecostal enough to stir up a sandstorm of compassion and truth and justice, which will stir up some trouble everywhere we go. Walk in the dusty roads of this world with Jesus, lifting up the downcast, healing the broken, reconciling what is lost, bringing peace. Some years ago, ESPN Sports 
called the beginning of a Clemson University football game the most exciting 25 seconds in sports. I think those folks had never been down the road to witness the kickoff of a football game at Williams-Brice Stadium. Because when the Gamecocks of South Carolina get ready to kick off, the sound system blares out the song Sandstorm, and it is just amazing. There is electricity in the air. The last time Amy and I were there, I really thought the whole stadium might just crumble under my feet. It was amazing. It's that kind of energy. I started to play it for you this morning, but I couldn't find the best. So go look it up on, on, on YouTube if you've not heard Sandstorm. It's really pretty amazing. And it's that kind of energy the world needs to see from the church. We need to be a people inspired enough with the holy fire of the example of Jesus to walk along the dusty roads of this world, creating a sandstorm of compassion and truth and justice everywhere you go. So let me ask you today, before you go, as you go, what kind of dust are you going to kick up along the way? May it be so. Amen. If you saw me or probably people in the choir laughing, it's because we just lost a church member in Sarah Grace Lilly. She was in uh, Hilt Hall, and when she's a big Tiger fan, and when Russ said that about uh, the Gamecocks being more exciting, she walked in and went. <laughs> For those of you that are, have been here uh, most of the time, you know what I'm about to do, and I'm sorry you have to hear me explain it again, but it doesn't make sense if I don't tell you what I'm about to do, and there are some people that haven't been here and are visiting with us. So since Maundy Thursday, I have been doing a fictional uh, narrative that I have made up in my mind based on biblical, uh, the biblical story. And I've been seeing this whole uh, scenario through the eyes of Martha. The first time I brought Martha to uh, this kind of experience was on Maundy Thursday. And so what we read today from John's Gospel was part of what she would have heard and what the disciples heard at that last supper with Jesus. So I have taken uh, Martha and tried to see what Jesus said and how it felt through her eyes. And I've done this all the way through uh, and we'll go all the way to Pentecost and then I'll put her away, I promise, um, at least for a while. So this is my... Um, interpretation maybe of what it might have felt like to be a woman among Jesus followers you know that feeling don't you thinking man I wish I had known then what I know now I would have handled myself so differently two things for absolute sure that I would have done differently one I would have listened more carefully and two I would have asked more questions. Heck, I'd have asked any question. More often than not, I kept my mouth shut, just grateful to be there at all. I wasn't going to mess that up by speaking out too much, and certainly not in the form of a question. I knew my place. Some of the guys, you know, his closest guys, they asked questions, but only a few. And I don't mean to be too harsh but the questions they asked were not ever really good questions, in my humble opinion. 
they asked questions that were either A, clueless, or B, self-centered. Now back to the listening thing. I think I listened better than most people were listening because you tend to listen better when you're focused on keeping your mouth shut, but I still wish I had listened more intensely and more deeply. And I wish I had not been afraid to ask my questions. I guess there's a lesson in that for all of us then. We should listen more and ask better questions. The problem is we love answers so much. We love when things are absolute and definite and we tend to be uneasy with the questions. Jesus could have handled anything we threw at him, so I don't know why there was so much hesitancy with our questioning nature. That's on us. Let me take you back to that first night I ever started telling you about my experiences with Jesus. It's what we know now was the last supper any of us would ever have with him, which goes back to my main point that we should listen very, very carefully all the time, for you never know what is your last anything. Morbid, I know, but true. It was that night of that last supper that he started talking about leaving us and what it would be like without him, and he tried to tell us that something or someone would be in his place. He used the word advocate, a real almost SAT word, but in my mind that word seemed a bit dis distant and sterile. The questions I wanted to ask but didn't were, what will this advocate look like? Will we know the advocate when the advocate shows up? I think he used the word spirit too. Yes, if memory serves, he said the spirit of truth. Will we know her for who she is when she shows up? Will she talk to us? Or will it be more like a gut feeling. Well, of course, now I know this wasn't something we would see at all. And then I wondered, well, how would we ever be able to discern what was God's presence or God's spirit in our lives from what we want or what we think we want it to be? We could not picture life without him until we had to. It took a while as we were so deep in our grieving that we kind of forgot everything he said that night until one day when we were all together, there was this presence, this feeling. It was so clear and so real. She, the advocate, the spirit, the comforter, whatever you want to call her, she was with us. It wasn't some kind of ghost Jesus. It was a spirit of truth that reassured us that we were not alone. This feeling, this presence, this sense, I probably feel it most when we're all together, kind of like this. But sometimes I do feel it when I'm all by myself. I am so aware that God is with me. Now, of course, there are times when I don't feel her at all. That's when I have to trust 
that there are others out there experiencing it. And just because I'm not doesn't mean that she doesn't exist. And if I'm patient and gentle with myself through the rough patches, the feeling usually circles back around the presence, the spirit, the advocate. She has a way of showing up, and usually it's right on time. But the truth is, I can't really explain it to you, not in any concrete way. So I guess it's just as well that I didn't ask all my questions that night about this particular topic, because I don't think he would have been able to answer them sufficiently for me. The presence of God is something that one experiences, and most often I find it indescribable. How do you explain something to someone when it's pure mystery and yet so real? You know what I mean?